is this for real? Like, are these people really this awesome and this cool? And how could they be so open? Welcoming. And welcoming. We felt like we were part of them, one of the most authentic group of people we have ever met. So in 2020, when the pandemic started, we were pretty heavily involved with our church back home, but unfortunately it shut down. And um, we were looking for something for our kids. I went online and I Googled um, kids' programs or any kind of resources that are available for us parents. Kids Codes at Home somehow popped up. We experienced the kids' service online for the first time. And it was love at first sight for the kids. We start watching the adult service. We fell in love with it. We just both knew we felt like we wanted more. I went on the group website and kind of just scrolled to see what options are out there, uh, sent out a couple of emails. And our email was a little bit awkward and weird because we said, hey, we're strangers. We would like to kind of come into your living room through a computer via Zoom. Would you be open to that? Because we are going to relocate and we'd love to start making connections. It's always intimidating to join a group, and especially for us joining through Zoom in someone else's living room. We had pretty low expectations. Our group actually decided to invite us to go camping with them. We don't do camping, so we were very hesitant. And needless to say, we have never met these people in person. So there was a little bit of hesitancy to, like, okay, like, they've been great over the computer, but now we're going to spend the whole weekend with them in the woods. It really felt like we've known them forever. You know, it felt like we're coming home to the family that we now couldn't bring with us. God has the right group of people for you. It's just a matter of you taking the steps to go. Uh, being a part of, you know, a community of men who love Jesus and love their families, love spending time with their families, means a lot because that's what I'm trying to replicate and, and, and do as well. Do not do life alone. Like, it's so much better in community. And I know it can be scary and it can be intimidating, but sometimes you got to do the crazy thing and make that first step. All right. Yeah. Well, good morning. My name is Adam. I get to be part of the team here. I'm so excited that you guys are with us. I'm I love that story. I love how things worked out for Will and Audrey. I love their courage to join a small group virtually. I love their small group's courage to bring them in virtually. And then they kind of all came together in person. But if a small group invites you right out of the gate to go camping, just know that's how a lot of Dateline episodes get started. Something to think about. Maybe if it's a Seacoast small group, you're safe. You'll be okay. But uh, I, 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 lo I love the line that she used where we were strangers and we became family. And if there were a tagline for small groups here at Seacoast, that's it. Where strangers become family. So I, I'd encourage you. We're going to talk about it a little today. But just small groups is where you want to be this year if you really want to grow in your faith. So I want to welcome everybody who's here in Mount Pleasant, those of you who are joining us online, maybe from one of our campuses. I'm glad that we can be one family in this new year, even though we're in different places. And I want to start today with a question. Everybody's got to participate. How many of you know that sometimes life can take on a momentum of its own? And, and suddenly, wow, that's a lot of hands. Take it easy. Suddenly, you find yourself in a position where you're asking, how did I get here? This is not what I had in mind. Anybody know that's true? Yeah, we, we've experienced this. Well, a couple of days 
before Christmas, I was out like many of you running a couple errands just to get it all tied down before Christmas. And I was in a, in a left-hand turn lane on what is easily the busiest road in Mount Pleasant. It's six lanes, three in each direction. It's always packed with cars. This day was no exception. Everybody was out trying to get things done before Christmas. And as I was sitting in that left-hand turn lane, I could see across the intersection from the coming the opposite direction that a car had stalled out. And as the light turned green, all the cars tried to weave around it to, to just get on their way. And they were frustrated and the driver was frustrated. And eventually a police officer came by and parked behind that car. He got out of his car and I could see that a conversation was taking place. They were devising a plan. And so then they bet each of them went in different directions. The driver went over to his to the driver's side, opened the door, put one hand on the door, one hand on the steering wheel, and the police officer got behind. And I could tell the plan was to push this vehicle off of the main road onto an intersecting, less busy road, the road I was going to turn on. So they started pushing and turning the vehicle. And, and as the car got enough momentum, the police officer stopped pushing. He, he realized the car had plenty of momentum to get off this road and onto the intersecting road. But the man did not stop pushing. In fact, he was only pushing harder. I think his idea was, I'm going to get enough momentum here that I can hop in the car and roll it all the way down to the end of this road where there's a gas station. But as he went to jump in the car, he missed his step. And so now he's tugged on the wheel a little bit and the car is drifting to the left into two opposing lanes of traffic. And the man is like trying to use his Fred Flintstone brakes to stop the car, but it's not stopping. In fact, now it's only on a hill and going faster. And so he decides to let go. He lets go and rolls away. Now the car is going unpiloted into two lanes of opposing traffic. And I look at the police officer and he just does this. He goes back to his car, gets in it, takes off after the vehicle with the lights on to let everybody know that there's something not quite right here. And the cars coming at this vehicle are like swerving to get out of the way. The car hits the curb on the left side, which throws it back to the right, across the lanes of traffic, across the median, into the flow of traffic going in the same direction. This goes on for several hundred yards. I'm still sitting in the left-hand turn lane with a front row seat. I'm killing myself that I've not recorded it. <laughs> and the car eventually comes to rest in a ditch near the gas station. Apparently, it knew where it needed to be the whole time. <laughs> now the light turns green, and I get to turn. And the man at this point is walking down the middle of the road in the median. And I'm going to check on him. I mean, he's been through it. So I roll down my window and I pull up beside him and I can tell right away he's in no mood for a conversation. So I just look at him and I give him one of these. And he just looks at me with this look of, I knew I shouldn't have left the house today. It all worked out okay. In the end, everything worked out, but things definitely did not go as he wanted. There was a plan, but things took on a momentum of their own and started moving in a direction that just wasn't exactly what the man had in mind. And I believe we can all relate to this. Sometimes in our lives, the decisions we make begin to take on a momentum of their own. And we find ourselves asking the question, how did I end up here? How did I get here? This weekend, we're going to kick off a brand new series called The Power of Routine, where we're looking at the decisions we make, the good ones 
the bad ones, and where they end up taking us. And today we're going to look at a story in the New Testament about a man who I believe felt a lot like this man. And at a point in his life, probably asked the question, how did I end up here? This is not what I had in mind for my life. It's a story that's recorded in three of the four Gospels with remarkable similarity. We're going to look at how Mark records the story. And in chapter 5, he tells us that Jesus and the disciples had just crossed the Sea of Galilee and starts like this. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. The man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day from among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit or you impure spirit. Then he asked the man, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus and saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. And Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. And Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use your word to open our minds and our hearts to whatever you have for us today. Help us to see that we were made to step into a life that is abundant and full in Jesus name. Amen. So I know there's a lot going on in the story. I recognize that. But I also know just how quickly we can get caught up in this idea of demon possession. Right? As we read the text. Like we're thinking, is that a thing? Does that still happen? Because I got some people in my life who were suspect. You know? The whole idea can be a little bit unsettling. So let me just offer you an answer that will put you at ease. I have no idea. I have zero idea. I don't know how this applies to our lives today. But here's what I know for sure without question. In this world, we have an enemy who hates us. He hates our friendships. He hates our marriages. He hates our children. He hates anything that has the potential 
to resemble the unconditional love of God. And this enemy is far great, is infinitely stronger than we are. Like, aren't you glad you came to church today? Be encouraged, be blessed. But, and this is really important, I want you to hear it. He is infinitely weaker than the God we serve. First John 4 reminds us the one who is in you is greater. Say greater. Greater than the one who is in this world. That is the victory that we have in Jesus. So I don't want us to get too caught up in that part of the text, because it's not even what the author is really focusing on. It's a part of the story, but it's not the main part. And there's so much more for us to gain from this text. So we're going to use three questions this morning as we explore the text together. First question, what are you running from? What are you running towards? And who are you running with? Those are the three questions. What are you running from? What are you running towards? And who are you running with? So that first question, what are you running from? Very early, Mark makes it clear where this man came from. Verse 2, he says, When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived among the tombs. He lived among things that were dead and lifeless. Now, Mark uses the word impure here, but Matthew and Luke, they tell us right away that the man was demon possessed and they're both right. They're not contradicting each other. Mark is just focusing on a part of Jewish law here that according, according to the law, any contact with a dead body meant that you were ritually impure and you had to go through a purification to be restored into the community. So it's not a contradiction, but the Jews are very serious about this. It's why cemeteries were far away from town. It's why Jesus was crucified outside the city. But Matthew and Luke tell us right away the man was demon possessed. And the word they use in Greek here is echo, meaning closely joined. It's very similar to our English word echo, where there's a corresponding sound that is closely joined to the original sound. So this man is running from the tombs joined closely by an identity that does not represent his true identity. Because we can see at the end of the text, his true identity was very different. Verse 15 says they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And I don't know if you know this, but this can be our struggle too. Sometimes there's a gap between our true identity and the one we've settled for. Because often in our pain, we settle for an identity that tells us we're unfit, unseen, unwanted. But from this text, we're reminded that our true identity was established by the God whose love for us is unwavering, unrivaled, and unconditional. Paul reminds us of this in one of his letters. He says, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. He says in another letter, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ becomes, has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And then finally, he says, for we are God's masterpiece. Say masterpiece. 
He created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. This, this is our true identity. This is who we were made to be. But we are, but until we're willing to surrender our false identities to God, we're never going to be able to step into our true identity as a masterpiece of God. But unfortunately, this was this man's everyday experience. Mark points out that night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Now, this is perhaps the first ever recorded case of self-harm through cutting. And I realize that some people just don't understand how anyone could do this to themselves until we recognize that it's just like any other coping strategy. All of us, all of us have developed strategies to cope with emotional pain in our lives. If you think you haven't, it just means you're not aware of how you cope with your pain yet. And all of these strategies, they're designed to provide us with a momentary release of anxiety. But like the man, many of our coping strategies, they're self-destructive. And we know this. Internally, we know this. And so it's usually followed by some degree of guilt or shame, creating a self-sustaining loop. The guilt and shame that we feel triggers us to reach for our coping strategy all over again. This is how most addiction patterns are born. It may not be cutting. It might be a substance or it might be another pattern like pornography or even working too much. But if you look at it like this, it begins to make a little bit more sense to us. But here's the reality, the reality for all of us. When we become disconnected from our God given identity, we will often find ourselves engaging in routines that appear to promise relief, but only deliver more pain. For the man in this text, text, this was his present reality when Jesus found him. The fact that he lived among the tombs, that didn't just describe the place where he resided. It also described the emptiness of his life. And I wonder how many of us are living among tombs, living among things that are empty and void of life, things that will never give us the life we want. How many of us are caught up in dead patterns of thinking, dead behaviors, dead relationships, dead dreams? You live there too long, and it begins to make sense why this man was filled with so much pain and despair. Now, you could, you could easily misunderstand what I'm saying here and think, you know what, Adam, you're right. My marriage, it feels kind of dead. And I should just walk away. Thank you. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you shouldn't settle for a dead relationship. You should fight for it. You and your spouse should take responsibility for the lifelessness of that relationship and do the work to resurrect it. Now, here's one thing we can all learn from this man. He clearly did not know everything about Jesus, but he didn't allow what he didn't know about Jesus to stop him from running to Jesus. And I believe that that's something that's true for all of us. Like we're never going to understand it all. So here's the point. It's very hard sometimes to restore life to something without first running to the one who is life himself. We need to do that. And that brings us to our second question to consider this morning. What are you running towards? 
What are you running towards? In verse 6, Mark tells us that when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And that's where everything began to change for this man. But not, not before a very interesting standoff. In these next few verses, something happens that I think gets very little attention. And so I want to point it out here. When the man approached Jesus, Mark says, he shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. We're caught immediately by the fear in that man's words, so much so that it's easy to miss how confrontational they were. Because remember, the man was possessed by multiple demons. And by calling him Jesus, son of the most high God, they were attempting to level out the power imbalance they knew existed. You see, in first century Judaism, it was a power play to call someone by their first name. And we know this. We kind of get it. Because we know that when we were kids and we did something bad, our, our parents sometimes wouldn't just call us by our first name, but they'd use our last name, right? And if it was really bad, they throw in our middle name. That's when you knew you were in trouble. Anybody experience that? Anybody use that with your own kids? Anybody do that on the way to church this morning? Be honest. I know. So they tried to intimidate Jesus by using his name and rightful title, son of the most high God. And Jesus isn't rattled by this. In fact, Mark tells us that he responds with a very simple question. What is your name. Because while calling someone by their full name was kind of a power play in this culture, asking someone their name demonstrated an interest in getting to know them, an interest in developing a relationship. And this had to be very different from the response the man was expecting Jesus to have. I mean, how long had it been since anyone even got close enough to ask this man his name? How long had it been since anyone cared? To know his name. The fact that Jesus does this says a lot about the kindness of God embodied in the person of Christ. But the demons were not done fighting. Their response was an attempt to evade Jesus. Remember the question What is your name? Their response was legion, a Greek word that had only one meaning during that time. It was used to describe a battalion of 6,000 Roman soldiers, which was easily the most feared army of the day. What they were saying was, there are many of us. We're organized, we're unified, and we're ready to fight. And still, Jesus isn't rattled. You might be thinking, well, I mean, come on, Adam, he's Jesus. There's that. But what's interesting to me is that there's no record in any of the Gospels of the disciples backing down here. And we know that Mark has no problem talking about the disciples fleeing when things got crazy. In chapter 14, he points out how the disciples ran off and deserted Jesus when he got arrested. In fact, he makes a point to tell us that one of them ran off naked. Somehow, when the guards grabbed him, he wiggled out of their grasp by coming out of his clothes. I've been getting a lot of complaints lately that I haven't told any embarrassing naked stories. So there you go. You're welcome. But remember, remember what happened right before this 
to get to the shoreline where this encounter took place, they had to first cross the Sea of Galilee. And as they did, Jesus was asleep in the boat and a huge storm came upon them and the disciples began to panic. They did everything they could as they did everything they knew how to do as skilled fishermen, but they knew it wasn't going to be enough. And so they woke Jesus up screaming at him, don't you care if we drown? And Jesus stood up and he commanded the wind and the waves, quiet, be still. And in all three of the gospels, the disciples have the same response. Who is this man? You see, Jesus knew what they were going to see on the shore when they arrived. And he knew that in order to be ready for that confrontation, they would need to first go through a storm, a storm that would allow them to see that he was, in fact, Jesus, son of the most high God. For some of you, 2022 felt like a storm. In many ways, it felt that way for me and Dana. But I want you to be encouraged that God is doing something, always doing something in the storm to prepare you for what's on the shore. And because he's led you through the storm, you will be able to stand on the shore in confidence, knowing that no matter what you are confronted with, the son of the most high God stands with you. So again, here's this man who ran to Jesus, and that's where things began to change for him. But I want to point out something here. Notice that the demons knew exactly who Jesus was, but it had no impact on their lives. On the other hand, the man wasn't entirely sure who Jesus was, and yet his life was restored that day. What this teaches us is that What we know about God is not nearly as important as our posture towards God. From the text, we know that the demons, they were attempting to power up on Jesus. But also from the text, we can see the physical posture of the man. Verse six says, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. If you want to know where things will really begin to change in your life, it's right here. This is the moment when we will finally recognize the majesty of the Most High God. This is the moment when we will finally relinquish the throne of our lives to the rightful King. This is the moment when our lives will begin to be restored forever. And that's exactly what happened for the man. Mark tells us that once the people arrived to see what happened, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, sitting there dressed and in his right mind. It's easy to race by those words because we're excited about what has happened for the man. But if we do that, we will miss the completeness of the saving work of God. Sitting there in the Greek means at rest. Dressed means exactly what you think it does, but you need to know that the pinnacle of shame in this culture was being publicly naked. 
and in his right mind means that he was finally sober again or that his confusion was replaced with clarity. So another way to say this would be that the man was at rest, his shame removed, his clarity restored. In one brief encounter, God restored the man completely. And it all began with running to Jesus. So how about us? How about us? What are we running towards in 2023? And how many of you want to enter 2023 like this man? At rest, your shame removed, your clarity restored. Well, answering this last question can help us begin moving in that direction. So the last question is, who are you running with? After Jesus healed the man, the man naturally wanted to go with Jesus and his disciples. Mark says it this way. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, the 10 surrounding cities, how much Jesus had done for him and the people were amazed. After showing such kindness to the man, why wouldn't he allow him to come with he and the disciples? Well, I think it's, it's because he knew what the man needed the most. Remember, the man had been isolated for a long time, living among the tombs. And while Jesus had set him free for that, from that, he also intended to restore him into the community, which was a very big deal. Because in ancient cultures, the greatest focus was on the community. They, they worked for the benefit of the community. They fought for the benefit of the community. But in our modern culture, that, that focus has shifted. Today, people are generally motivated by what will benefit themselves. And we've lost sight of just how important the community is. But Jesus tells the man, go home to his own people and tell them how much the Lord had done for him. Because Jesus wanted to restore the man into his community to share the goodness and mercy of God because he knew just how much the man needed the community. But he also knew just how much the community needed the man. Because listen, no, no matter how much our culture tells us that this life is all about me, it does not change the fact that we were made for community. We will thrive in it and we will languish outside of it. It's really not an argument we need to make anymore because we lived it. We experienced it when we were locked down during COVID, separated from our community. You introverts, you lost your minds. You extroverts, rather. You lost your minds first. And then the introverts soon after followed. I know I'm an introvert, but we all began to come apart. In the last hundred years of psychosocial experimentation, they've proven this to us. It barely requires an argument anymore. But King Solomon knew it 2,500 years ago when he wrote, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help him up. This was what Jesus wanted for the man and the community he sent him to. 
He wanted the man to reconnect with a family that could support and encourage him. And he wanted the community to be encouraged by the man he had restored. So some of you, I know, are visual learners. And so I want to demonstrate this with a couple of lighters. Each of us, we were meant to live in the light of God's peace. But sometimes we face difficult circumstances that bring with it heavy discouragement. And that threatens our peace. But if we'll remain connected in community, we can help restore the light of God's peace to one another. This is why small groups at Seacoast are so important. We all need community. We were meant to share the light of Christ with one another, to encourage and inspire our faith and hope and trust and confidence in God. Remember what Jesus said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Imagine how that must have impacted the community. They were confronted face to face with the power and mercy of God in this man. And imagine how it must have impacted the man. He was part of a family again. And it all began with a willingness to put himself in community. So if you're not in a small group here at Seacoast, then it's just time. It's time. And this is a perfect weekend for it because all of our groups are kicking back off. They'll be out in the breezeway and a whole bunch of new groups are starting. So if you leave today without a plan to be part of a community of a small group this spring, then you're very likely going to miss out on some of what God has for you in 2023. Now, I want to close by pointing out something very important here in the text. It's something that we all just did at Christmas time. If you joined us for one of our Christmas Eve services, or maybe if you went anywhere for Christmas Eve, you probably sang the song, Oh, Holy Night. It's an amazing song. It's a beautiful song. But we often miss the depth of it because we're just so familiar with it. But the song is a story. And the first few lines, they describe exactly what happened for this man. Now, I'm not going to sing it because I want you to come back next week. (laughs) But it reads like this. Oh, holy night. The stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Till he appeared. And the soul felt its worth. That moment when Jesus appeared on the shore, that moment when the man ran to him, that was the moment when his soul began to feel its worth again. Having lived this part of his life feeling unfit and unseen and unwanted, he would now enter a new life knowing he was loved unconditionally by the Most High God. And listen, I know it's the beginning of a new year, and all of us, we're probably turning our focus towards becoming a better 
version of ourselves. We've got plans. We've got strategies. We've got resolutions. But if we really want to step into the life we were made to live, then we will have to establish a routine of running to the one who can restore us completely. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you showed up in the person of Jesus. You showed up into our world to restore us, even at a great cost to yourself. I pray, Father, that you would give us the courage to run towards you and run with the right people this year, that we might live the life you've made us for. In Jesus' name, amen. So for the next couple of minutes, we want to give you guys a chance to respond. We call this response time at Seacoast, and we just frame it with two questions. We do it every week. God, what are you saying to me, and what do you want me to do about it? What do you want me to do with that? For some of you, maybe you can see, maybe you know some of the dead patterns, dead routines in your life, and you're ready to start moving away from those. Start moving towards your true identity as a masterpiece of God. If that's you, then I want to encourage you, go to one of the crosses today, write down on a piece of paper what that pattern or patterns are. Pin it to the cross. Leave it there with God. Let it be your way of saying that I am stepping away from all that I have settled for so that I can step into what I was made for. For some of you, maybe 2023 is the year you're finally going to put yourself in community. Community of people that can help you grow in your faith. And if that's you, I'd encourage you, go light a candle this morning. Ask God to bring his light to that process. But the other thing I want you to do is I want you to go out into the breezeway and I want you to find a group of people to link arms with. So a whole bunch of small groups represented out there today. Or maybe you're in a small group. I want you to find someone in the breezeway and grab hold of them and say, you're with us this year. Just don't ask them to go camping. <laughs> For some of you, maybe you're ready to change your posture towards God. You're ready to surrender the throne of your life to the rightful king, to the one who showed up in our lives to restore us. If that's you, I'd encourage you, come to someone on our prayer team. Let them pray for you, pray over you, and give you some direction on how to take those next steps. I also want to invite you to come and celebrate communion, giving thanks to God that he would allow his son's body to be broken and blood to be shed, that we might be free from sin. You don't need to be a member of our church, just a member of the body of Christ, but come and celebrate his sacrifice. And finally, as a part of response time, I want to encourage us to be generous. Generosity is our opportunity to show gratitude to the God who has been immeasurably generous with us. So let's respond together now as we worship Jesus, Son of the Most High God.